Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca. It's the California Report magazine. And this week, we're looking back at 2021. It's been a year, or maybe a thousand years. But along the way, we've tried to bring you stories about people who've really inspired us this year, whether they were healthcare workers. She'd wear her N95 mask, and then she'd wear a bedazzled mask on top of that. I bought her a shield. She bedazzled the shield. Or people fighting for racial justice and recognition for the trailblazers who've come before us. She opened doors, and today a lot of the actors of color are not having to deal with some of the things she dealt with. Plus the artists who brought us music and all the beautiful things we need to keep going. My president sang Something about that dice. What is it this time? She's been at that new sterilizer again. Every time I sterilize the sheet, she puts them back. Says they ain't white enough. That's a clip of Juanita Moore in a 1949 film called Pinky. She appeared in more than 80 movies and TV shows over her seven-decade career. She was a showgirl at 18 at Small's Paradise at the Zanzibar Club, several venues throughout New York during the Harlem Renaissance. This was in the 30s. That's her nephew, Arnett Moore. He's 75, and he's on a lone mission to get her a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She sang at the London Palladium, at the Moulin Rouge, and she even had a chance to sing and dance with Josephine Baker and other prominent blacks during that time. When Juanita returned to California and got into acting, she found it was hard to break out of stereotypical roles. She was from the boudoir to the jungle. In other words, she played a maid to a savage. And and that was her early career. Mm -hmm. Those were the roles available to to black women at the time. They were the roles available to black women. And one thing she wouldn't do is 
play the mammified role or the buffoon role. She would not do those. It wasn't until 1959, when she starred in Imitation of Life, that her true talents were finally recognized. I just want to look at you. That's why I came. Are you happy here, honey? Are you finding what you really want? I'm somebody else. I'm white. White. Juanita plays Annie, a mom whose light-skinned daughter Sarah Jane rejects her black identity and tries to pass as white. And if by accident we should ever pass on the street, please don't recognize me. I won't, Sarah Jane. I promise. I settle all that in my mind. I remember that it was a very emotional picture, and it still remains so. I once was asked by a friend of mine, did you cry during the imitation of life? I said, no. I didn't want him to think I cried. But yes, I cry even today, and I cried then. Sarah Jane, oh, my baby. My beautiful, beautiful baby. I love you so much. Nothing you ever do can stop. In 1995, Juanita talked about that role in an interview with Turner Classic Movies. She remembered what the film's producer, Ross Hunter, told her when she got the part nearly 40 years earlier. Juanita, he said, uh, I've put my neck out for you. He said, if you're no good, the picture's not going to be any good. And it just scared me to death, you know, to, to say that. That's a lot of pressure. And she says that. Really, that was her coming out, too. She had been in movies prior to that, playing small parts and some uncredited parts. But this was her opportunity to bust out at 44 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked to give the award for the best performance by an actress in a supporting role. Or to put it more succinctly, the best picture stealer. Juanita got an Academy Award nomination. The nominees are Hermione Badley for Room at the Top, Susan Koner for Imitation of Life, Juanita Moore for Imitation of Life. Even though she didn't win, Juanita Moore was only the fifth black actor at that point to have been nominated for an Oscar. She was a trailblazer. She opened doors, and today a lot of the actors of color are not having to deal with some of the things she dealt with. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not like it was because of people like her and Sidney Poitier and others that stuck their necks out early on. After Imitation of Life, Juanita hoped she could star in her own films or at least be cast in more substantive roles. But she didn't get offered another part for a year. I didn't want to carry the trays anymore. And I knew that that was all the only kind of job that I was going to get. I knew that, but I did not want to do that. So I don't know if being nominated uh, helped me or not. But true to her passion, she never quit acting. She went on to perform mostly small roles. Her last part was in 2000 as a grandmother in Disney's The Kid with Bruce Willis. She died just before New Year's Day 2014 at the age of 99. Arnett says when he was a kid growing up in L.A., his aunt never talked much about her career. He's had to uncover her history himself after her death, including digging up hundreds of photos. Uh, let's see. This is my booklet that I put together on Juanita. That's Juanita. 
Sammy Davis Jr. And they took this, and Sammy wasn't even in the movie, but he was a friend of Juanita. Arnett and is a retired salesman. He doesn't have big connections with the film industry. But over the last two years, he's launched a grassroots campaign for Juanita Moore to get a Hollywood star. You know, in the 50s when I was growing up, when you saw a black person on the TV screen, you got excited. And Juanita was that face you saw again and again and again. I'm very proud of her. She had a, a lot of obstacles, the biggest one being racism. She's a star without a star. And here's an update to that story. Arnett Moore submitted his application for the third year in a row this spring, and Juanita Moore lost out to stars like Naomi Watts and Benedict Cumberbatch. But Arnett says he's gonna keep trying until his aunt is finally recognized on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Of course, we've still been in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic this year. More than 75,000 Californians have lost their lives to the virus. We launched a series here on our show asking listeners to tell us about loved ones lost to COVID. One of my favorite tributes this year was to Sylvia Morton. She was 61, and she worked in the ER at Riverside Community Hospital. If she was on duty, you would know it. Her voice was very penetrating. <laughs> when she was at work, she had to wear a button that said, I am loud, so that elders knew that she wasn't trying to talk at them. She just had a very loud, penetrating voice. My mom had a bedazzled Hello Kitty ER sweater. And everybody knew, oh, there's Sylvia. Those are her daughters, Yoli Ballesteros and Marlene Morton. Reporter Asala Sanapur brings us this remembrance. Sylvia's voice was as booming as her love of Selena. She played all of the songs at work, but her favorite was Bitty Bitty Bum Bum. She would start dancing and singing and flipping her hair back and forth like she was on stage. She really loved Selena to the point where she changed her name on her badge to Selena. And she told them, okay, my name is Selena. Everybody has to call me Selena. Sylvia Morton grew up in San Bernardino. She was a proud member of the Cahuilla tribe and lived just south of San Manuel Indian Reservation. Her mom died when she was three. Her dad was an alcoholic. And so she spent her childhood shuttling between relatives' houses. There was always a pot of beans made, and everyone had a ration. And if you were not home in time, then if it was gone, it was gone. In the absence of that big, nurturing family she craved, Sylvia played pretend. She watched the Partridge family, and she would sing and be part of the Partridge family. It was someplace happy for her to kind of be other than just stuck in her reality. In junior high, she fell for a tall, green-eyed goofball named Carlos. He fell for her deep dimples and long black hair. Carlos's grandmother invited Sylvia for breakfast almost every day so she'd have something to eat before school. I know my mother always said that my dad rescued her 
And when she was 12, she decided that that was the love of her life and she was going to marry him. And at 15, she did. With her dad's blessing, Sylvia and Carlos got married in Mexico. And when Sylvia was just 15, she had her first baby, Carlos Jr. Soon after came little Yoli. My mother was 17 when she had me, so we kind of grew up together. I remember when I was about four years old, my mom taught me how to do backflips in our front yard, and she actually showed me because <laughs> she, she was that young. But even as a young mom, Sylvia was committed to giving the kids more than she'd had. Every morning, we lined up like little soldiers, and <laughs> you know, she made sure everyone's hair was combed, everybody had on clean clothes. The kids also remember packing into their dad's 51 Chevy Deluxe Lowrider. On the weekends, they'd cruise the boulevard while blasting oldies, like Sylvia's favorite, Brenton Wood. A few months after giving birth to her baby girl, Marlene, Sylvia decided to earn her certified medical assistant certificate. She wanted us to be educated. She wanted us to have good careers, to be self-sufficient, to take care of ourselves. And she showed us by example how to do that. Sylvia rose through the ranks from certified medical assistant to radiology technician and eventually headed up ER admissions. Throughout her career, she encouraged young people in the Native American community to dream big, too. Sylvia mentored Native kids, hired them whenever she could, and she taught weekly art and music classes on the local reservation. Yoli says when her mom gave talks at the tribal high school, she'd pack the auditorium. She would let them know that getting your diploma is great and it's a necessity to move further in life, but there's more. Push yourself to do more. Sylvia's ambition rubbed off on her own kids too. Almost all of them got into the medical field. Sylvia was one of those people who realized how serious the pandemic was gonna be before the outbreak started here in California. She and Yoli got to work early, sewing masks. She'd wear her N95 mask, and then she'd wear a bedazzled mask on top of that. I bought her a shield. She bedazzled the shield. And she moved her Native American art classes to YouTube, a series called Sylvia Morton's Native Notions. Hi there, this is Sylvia, and we're here today from Morongo Tribal Tanis. Um, today's class is going to be a medicine bag. She squeezed in the videos between long, grueling nights in the emergency department. We had been telling my mom, don't go to work. Because at that time that she caught COVID, it was like wildfire. And I kept telling her, you have PTO, use your time off. And she kept saying, I have to, you know, she has a responsibility. And I felt a little selfish because I was like, your responsibility is us, your family. But she continued to go to work. The entire family gathered together for the last time on Thanksgiving. Soon after, Sylvia tested positive for COVID-19. Her son, Carlos Jr., tested positive too. Him and my mom were extremely close. 
Um, she was 15 when she had him. And he was a natural born leader. He really picked up that from my mom. Sylvia and Carlos got to share a room at the hospital where they were being treated. Since Marlene worked there too, she was able to ring in the new year with them. Carlos Jr. died on January 1st, just a few hours later. I feel that it was God giving my mom the last few hours with her son. And I think that my brother felt comfort the moment he seen my mom and knew that she was in the bed next to him. There didn't have to be words. They could just look at each other. She was moved out of the room hours before he passed. She said that she knew within her body and her heart. She said she knew from her mother and Steve. And then when he passed away, immediately she, it was like a rapid decline. She really, really needed my brother. Sylvia passed away a week after her son, on January 8th, 2021. Looking back on Sylvia's life, there's one thing her daughters know she'd be proud of. Her family. family. She was an amazing mother for not being able to have a mother growing up, not being able to have her mother. She was always there. She was young. She made a lot of mistakes, but she was there. Sylvia Morton is survived by her husband, four children, 11 grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. For The California Report, I'm Asala Sanapur. This year also brought us the inauguration of a new president. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge. And unity is the path forward. Right after President Biden spoke at his inauguration, country music star Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In one of my favorite stories from 2021, KQED's Chloe Veltman spoke to some California artists who have strong ties to the song about its enduring power and about what we can all learn from its message. For years, there's been this link between Amazing Grace and U.S. presidents all along the political spectrum. It was played on the bagpipes at Ronald Reagan's funeral. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush have all called the hymn a favourite. And no one can forget that moment in Charleston, South Carolina in June 2015, when Barack Obama took the song to another level. Amazing grace, the then-president broke into song in the middle of his eulogy for state senator and church pastor Clementa Pinckney. That a wretch 
Pinckney, along with eight members of his congregation, had been gunned down at their church by a white supremacist earlier that month. It was the latest in a spate of mass shootings motivated by racial hatred. That moment the president responded to the massacre by singing the song Amazing Grace is considered one of the most powerful of his years in office. So much so, it inspired a new song. The president came to speak some words and the cameras rolled and the nation heard. Just days after Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016, folk singer Zoe Mulford wrote the president sang Amazing Grace. Many Americans were still reeling from the events in Charleston the previous year. But no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead. Mulford's song lyrics, where no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead, reflect back to a president who, in her mind, was able to connect with people in their grief. The president said, Folk radio stations across the country picked up the song. One pretty famous folk singer happened to be listening while driving near her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. When I first heard it, I had to pull the car over because I started crying. That's Joan Byers. And she told NPR hearing that song inspired her to make her own version. A young man came to a house of prayer they did not ask what brought him there. He Here Baez is singing the song on tour in Paris in 2018, where she wrapped up her performance with words about how much she missed President Obama. He wasn't perfect, but he was a president. <laughs> right now we have nothing. And the president sang Amazing Grace kept going. It inspired a California publisher to commission a children's book. And in those final fraught weeks leading up to last November's presidential election, this video hit my inbox. The president came to speak some words And the cameras rolled And the nation heard it features San Francisco's Kronos Quartet and Ethiopian-American vocalist Maklit Hadero. Obama's singing of Amazing Grace in Charleston was a moment, Maklit says, when Americans were faced with a choice. Were we going to choose this path of racist, white supremacist leadership that encourages the darkest parts of American history to wield their guns? Or were we going to choose the possibility of something else? For McLeet, President Obama's decision to sing Amazing Grace spoke to his willingness to be vulnerable. We don't want our presidents to do that. And yet, those can be the moments where we connect as human beings to each other. And so why not have a president that can do that? My president sang amazing.
Amazing Grace has travelled far and wide since English clergyman John Newton wrote the lyrics in 1772. It's unclear what, if any, music he used when he invoked it as part of a sermon, but Amazing Grace travelled across the Atlantic where it was enthusiastically picked up by Baptist and Methodist preachers. Eventually the words were paired with the tune we associate them with today. The song took root in the black church, where it's been sung across generations. Now, Amazing Grace for us, I mean, it is a traditional song, always been a landmark for black America and black church. Margaret Pleasant Durow is a gospel music composer, choir director and longtime member of the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church in Inglewood. I'm a little bit awestruck when Margaret tells me she was in the audience the day Aretha Franklin recorded her iconic take on Amazing Grace in Los Angeles in 1972. Margaret says it was hard not to sing along with the Queen of Soul. Amazing Grace. We'll just join right in, especially if we know the song, somebody's going to be singing with Aretha Franklin. And Margaret says there's no song quite like Amazing Grace for capturing the black Christian experience. Amazing Grace means something helped us. It was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us on. Many artists with California connections have taken the song in completely new directions, like drag theatre performer Taylor Mack. By the way, Taylor uses the pronoun Judy, as in Judy Garland. So in any case, Taylor has unhappy memories of being forced to sing the hymn at Christian Science Church as a kid growing up in Stockton. And everyone sings it kind of, Amazing God! You know, it wasn't exactly the most soulful rendition. And I can't say that I was particularly drawn to the song at all. But Taylor eventually came around to the song. Dressed in teetering platform heels, a fantastical headpiece festooned with tinsel and a glittering hoop dress, Taylor performed a minor key version as the opening number in a mammoth stage production chronicling the history of American popular music. The critically acclaimed show debuted right before the 2016 elections and toured the US through much of the Trump presidency. It became kind of a prayer for grace for the country. It stopped being about um, God. For me, in the Trump years, it became this beautiful way to start the show and say, hey, we're, we're all praying for actual grace now. <laughs> In his inauguration speech, President Joe Biden echoed the core message of Amazing Grace. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. 
in a dramatic moment towards the end of his rendition of Amazing Grace, country music star Garth Brooks reinforced the president's call for unity. I can ask you to sing this last verse with me. Not just the people here, but the people at home. At work as one, united. Of course, all of us singing Amazing Grace together won't solve this country's problems, but maybe it's a good place to start. Was blind, but now I see. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. And that's a roundup of some of our favorite stories from 2021 here on the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And we had additional engineering this week from Seal Muller. Our team also includes Lisa Morehouse, MJ Johnson, and Amanda Font. I'm Sasha Coca. Happy holidays, everybody. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.